Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 24, the foundation of the Xhosa Kingdom, with heroes like Chawe and Paulo. I made use of a number of books and documents in the series so far, but Jeff Perry's House of Paulo is probably my favorite source material for this section, mainly because he lectured me at Rhodes University in the mid-1980s. His book on the Xhosa is still the go-to research document, and I'm leaning quite heavily on that work for this episode. Let's take ourselves back to Xhosa prehistory, that time in early oral tradition where myths and legends are difficult to separate from reality. The Xhosa people of today think of themselves as being the common descendants of a great hero named Xhosa, who lived many hundreds of years ago. Some believed he is the son of Mguni, who gave the name to the Nguni language, and brothers of other kingdoms such as the pre-Zulu Ndwandwe or Mtetwa, as well as the Swazi or the Zulu themselves. We know that's possibly not true because the Zulu were a tiny offshoot of the Kwabe people who made a name for themselves only in the late 18th and early 19th century, whereas the Kosa were people who were around far earlier. The word Kosa is a Khoi word meaning angry men, and Veti, who is the main historian of the nearby Mpondomisi people, believes they were named by the Amatembu. Remember, we met the Amatembu last episode, the people who lived on the boundaries of the Kosa and were regarded as poorer because their land was less fertile. The earliest historical occurrence specific to the Xhosa was the installation of the Amatjawe as the royal family, and the story of Jawe is probably the best known of all Xhosa traditions. John Sorger wrote about this in his work Southeastern Bantu, which is a highly respected original document outlining the people of Xhosa land. Thus, the story of Jawe goes like this. He was apparently the favorite amongst his mother's people, and when he reached manhood, he was granted a large number of retainers, as was tradition. This formed the nucleus of his tribe. After some time, he collected all his people and then set off to visit his father, Kosinyamtu. The problem was, his father was already dead, and something which historians say he already knew. So what was his plan? We're not sure of exactly where he set off, or exactly where he was going, but we do know that as he went, stragglers from other tribes joined his retinue. When Chawe arrived at Kosinyamtu's home, he found his elder brother, Tiwa, was already ensconced as king. Apparently, Chawe accepted this, being the rule that the eldest always inherited first, and then settled down nearby. But this was a false peace. One day a hunt was proclaimed, and all sections of the tribe joined in. Chawe, we are told, managed to kill one of the most admired prey, a bluebuck antelope, and following custom he was supposed to offer the choicest bits to his big brother, Chief Tua. But Chawe refused, saying the buck was too small to chop up and share. Tua, naturally upset, called on Jara, the chief of the important right-hand house, to help, and they set upon Chawe in battle. We will hear more about what it means to be the right-hand house of the Kosa chief in a little while. So things were going rather badly for the upstart until Chawe sent for help from the nearby Mpondomisa people, who in turn dispatched the youngest and strongest regiments, known as the Amarodulu and the Imihaga, in strength. Tira was defeated and decided that instead of fleeing, he would actually remain at his homestead, but under the control now of his younger brother Chawe, and accepted his rule. That, however, was too much for Jwara, the chief of the right-hand house, who ordered his son and heir, Mazaleni, to remain with Chawe, as a spokesperson for the clan, and then took off. So Chawe's conquest is a tale of how he destroyed the independence of the various Iziswe, or nations in existence at the time, and installed a new kingdom. 
There's a major challenge with this traditional story because we just don't know how many of the facts are true, particularly the dates. It's important, though, because Xhosa people today still think of themselves as descendants of the ancient Amatipa, the Amangevu, or the Amakosini, who predated Chawe. It's also very important to understand that the Xhosa cannot date their bloodline back to a single person. The biggest clue is that of these clans I mentioned, the Amangwevu or others like the Ama Nchibili, the Ama Mfeni, or the Isitatu are not named after people at all but places. That is a clue to the vagueness of genealogy. Furthermore, these clans claim either Bantu or Khoisan origins, which throws another social complexity into the DNA mix. Let alone others who were European sailors who also ended up in this mix, which I'll deal with later in a separate podcast. Skin colours of Kozaland are vast. They are a diverse rainbow of yellows, rosy brown, burnt umber, chestnut cocoa, walnut tan, beige, khaki, mustard, russet, sandy brown, smoky topaz, chocolate and some are a glorious caramel. All these skin tones are clues to the breadth of history and all can be found amongst the Koza. Those who would spin history think of only black and white. Humans are coloured more creatively by our cross-mixing through thousands of years. Don't tell the political fundamentalists this. They'll throw a fit. Back to the story. Of course, we have pottery and archaeology, the science which can help you, but dating exact moments before the first written records is difficult. Some joined the Tosa voluntarily, like the Kotwa or Tembu, then Chilibi, who are of Suta origin, then Gwevu of Mpondomise, the Gikwa of the Khoi and the Nkosini, who were either of Khoi or of Sutu origin, we're not sure. There were others who were outside the main areas of what was known as Khoza land, who immigrated into their territory, such as the Imfeni and the Vuntle, who were originally Sutu and now live in Timbuland, or the Nklani and Zangwa, who were in Pondu, the Mpinga of Mpondomise. All these clans have oral traditions that speak of migrating into Khoza land. Others were forced into the Koza involuntarily. The Khoisan people, such as the Sukwini, the Kwashu, the Nkwarani, the Treti, who are the Koyobantu, and the Isitatu, who were mixed Khoi and San. There are also clans who have no idea of their descent, as they can't remember who predated Chawe. But one thing is clear from Koza political history. No one who was not a Chawe can be a chief amongst these people. And the word itself, Chawe, means royal person. So the British royal family, for example, are referred to as the Amachawe, and so to the historical elephant in the room. Archaeology has told us nothing definite about when exactly Chawe came to power. Some have tried multiplying the lists of chiefs since Chawe and estimating the number of years each ruled, and then to go back in time. But that's clearly faulty because we don't know how long each ruled. Two years or twenty? Who knows? The first written reports by European sailors in the early 15th century about the Koza don't help much because they describe a more fractured political system than ruled by Chawe. So the first substantial account, though, was by sailors of the Stevanisa, wrecked in 1686. Still, the first definite date of a Koza chief was 1736, when Paolo was already ruling the Koza. Perez has attempted to date chiefs back from Paolo, whose father, Chiu, died around 1715, and his father died around 1675. Trying to extend earlier than this is a big problem, but we believe the origin story of Chawe is likely to predate 1675. An Mpondo tradition speaks of the Koza and the Mpondo together on the mysterious Dedezi River, somewhere in the foothills of the Drakensberg far earlier. 
There are also some oral traditions that speak of Chawi bringing iron smelting skills into the region from the Sutu further west. We know it is true that the creation of major political groupings of the southern Nguni, that Koza, Tembu, Mpondo and Pondomisa, resulted from the rise of particular descent groups called the Chawe, Hala, Inyawuza and Majora, and they come from different regions. The process, though, was slow, long before the dramatic emergence of the Zulu to the northeast and continuing all the way through to colonial conquest and even to now. The Tosa nation is heterogeneous rather than a genetically defined tribe distinct from its neighbours. Earliest European writers of history preferred the conquest narrative where the warlike Tosa destroyed everything around them. That's not true. They were formed through a combination of war, yes, and peaceful coexistence. A case in point here is what happened to the Khoi. When they were defeated in the south by the Khoza, the Gona, Dama and Hunginkwa were not expelled from their ancient homes or relegated to servitude because they became Khoza with full Khoza rights. And by the 1650s, the Khoza had political ascendancy over most of the Cape Khoi, extending right to the very fringes of the Dutch settlement at the Cape. The way in which the Khoza managed this was to ally themselves to Khoi chieftains against their rivals. Take the Tranukwa, for example, who lived between the Breda and Zonderant rivers. That Tranukwa chief was given a young Khoi girl brought up among the Tosa. This led to Tosa visiting the chief on a regular basis just to see how she was getting on. And that Tranukwa then began asking the Tosa for assistance in local fights with other Khoi. This was similar in a way to what the Dutch were doing. In fact, Van Riebeck wrote in his journal that it was a sign of utmost respect when anyone gets a wife out of Tobona's house. That was the Dutch version of Tranukwa. In turn, the Tosa expected the Khoi allies to fight against other Khoi who were trying to dominate, such as the Hunginkwa, who were defying Tosa rule and refusing to pay tribute. There is a present narrative which is totally false that all Tosa and Khoi worked together to fight the European settlers. This is uninformed romanticism coloured by what was seen as black versus white 20th century simplification. As the Dutch grew their influence in the east coast of the Cape, the Tosa influence was reduced and the Khoi eventually disintegrated as a people as they were squeezed between the two. In 1700, the Inkwa kingdom of Hinsati, who was the most powerful Khoi chief on the east coast, fell to the Tosa. Hinsati, you see, made the fatal mistake of giving refuge to the Tosa king Gwali shortly after he was dethroned by his brother Mdange. There were a series of skirmishes and battles as Gwali and the Khoi fought Mdange. Eventually, Gwali actually turned on Hinsati himself and the shattered Inkwa were eventually assimilated into the Tosa as the Sukwini, Kwashu and Inkwarani clans. Then in 1750, the Arabi Khoi were overcome in the Amatola Mountains when Hoho, the Tosa chieftainess, ordered their destruction. This further weakened the Khoi and the Amatola who were then preyed on by the sand hunter-gatherers. Sometimes you just never win, because shortly after this event, a Dutch colonial expedition passed through the same area and reported a desperate situation. Those Khoi whom we met could not say what nation they belonged to, naming themselves according to the river where they lived. Of course, we know that Tosa did the same, so they had already changed their social patterns. And the European raiding party that passed through reported further that all these Hottentots were at one time rich in cattle but have lost them through the thieving of the Bushmen and in the wars they have fought amongst themselves. However, when the Khoi were defeated by the Khoza, it was very different from the effect of defeat by the European settlers later. When the Khoi were defeated, 
Their inferiority was expressed in economic terms and not in social or racial classifications, because within a generation after being defeated, the Khoi were actually accepted as full causes, so to speak. We'll learn more about the later 1700s when the Boers and the Khoi fought together at times against the Khoza, and at other times the Khoza and the Khoi fought against the Boers, and then of course the English. The assimilation of the Khoi into Khoza life led to a two-way combination in social terms, because of the use of Khoi cliques. One-sixth of all Khoza words use cliques, and very few of these have Nguni cognates, or what's known as linguistic derivation. They're derived from Khoi. But there was a limit too. For example, Khoza women were rigorously excluded from the pastoral sphere of life. They were not allowed to milk the cows, for example, or even touch them. Khoi women, on the other hand, did all the milking. The men did not. When your cattle are the source of your power, this is a very big difference between two kinds of African people. They may have lived alongside each other for hundreds of years, but this differentiation is significant. Another area where Khoza power was wielded was in their treatment of the San, the Bushmen. The Khoza were incredibly brutal towards the San. The oral history talks of them as subhuman and monkeys, with many traditional stories far too racist to recount here. Yet at other times, they would use San rainmakers, as I explained in an earlier podcast. Sometimes they fought and killed each other, at other times they didn't. A picture you could imagine taking place in any pre-industrial society in the world where local competition for resources is profound between two different groups of people that speak two different types of language and look slightly different. And now to Palu, who gave us two of the most important Khoza leaders, Aleka and Rarabi. Palu is a kind of shadowy figure about whom we know almost nothing, except that he is known to have crossed the Kai River and settled on the Izeli, which was a tributary of the Buffalo River, at some point after 1700. The earliest stories of Paolo and his sons are mixed up with magic and myth, but we can find historical truths which continue to affect South African society today. You see, as we progress in this tale of the history of this unique land, it's important to keep in mind the effect of historical narrative reference or oral history. One day, exactly when we're not sure, Paolo was at home on the Izeli River when he was embarrassed by the simultaneous arrival at his great place of two bridal parties. One came from the Mpondu king and the other from the Tembu king. By choosing one girl as his great wife, he would offend the father of the other. Sitting with Paolo, apparently, was a wise man called Majeki. He solved the problem by saying, What is greater than the head of the chief, and what is stronger than his right hand? According to tradition, then, the division between the great house and the right hand house was created. However, it's thought by historians and anthropologists that such a powerful social distinction couldn't really have happened overnight, or someone called Manjeki simply waving his arms about. But whatever the deep, ancient background to this logic is, the effect has had an important function in Khoza tradition and politics to this day. The people are divided between Taleka of the Transka and the Rarabi of the Siska. During apartheid, these were distinct Bantustans, so as you can see, the historical classification ended up being used against the Khoza by South Africa's Nationalist Party. But that's a long story for much later in this series. Yet the split is regarded as the most significant feature of Khoza internal politics, starting from the second half of the 17th century all the way through to the 21st, and it still matters. While the literal truth of the story is lost in time, it is clear that Daleka assumed greater magical powers than were usual for a Khoza chief. 
As he grew his political power at the same time, Tlaleka endangered the autonomy of junior chiefs. Rarabe, who was Tlaleka's brother, don't forget, both sons of Paolo after all, and Rarabe was Tlaleka's arch-rival. So the story continues. After Tlaleka was old enough and circumcised, he and his retainers went off to live near Komcha, which is a small town in the Eastern Cape. Shortly after the circumcision, at age around 18, he disappeared and was thought to have drowned in the nearby Nklikola River. A cow was sacrificed to the river and miraculously Tlaleka reappeared in a story that ironically is reminiscent of Huckleberry Finn. This mystical experience has a fundamental power in Tlaleka society. It's called Twasa, and Tlaleka was immediately classified as a diviner, a magical man. This was further reinforced again by his incessant witch-hunting later in life as he was sickly and always searching for the cause of his afflictions. Tlaleka constantly had people killed off in the hope of discovering the elusive witch. Of course, it must have been some other malaise and his health never improved. Needless to say, his brother Rarabi was both alarmed and disgusted and said, It is all right if ordinary people twasa. They are afraid to smell out a chief. But now that a chief has twasad, who will escape from being smelt out? He was right to worry. Within a year, Rarabi would be at war against his brother. That's for next episode, when we'll return to the goings-on further south, with the Dutch expansion growing steadily, and the start of what was known as the Bushman War of 1719, as well as the Khoi migration away from these settlers, which would have such a massive effect on South Africa's history. Please rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you can, it helps increase the visibility of our story. You can also contact me on Twitter, at Des Latham, or send an email through the site desmondlatham.com or desmondlatham.blog. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.